Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is the great Sam Vecini of The Athletic, and as you would expect, we spend a lot of time talking about the, I guess, pending-ish uh, 2022 NBA draft, both how the top two players have fared and also the sales pitches for Jabari Smith and Jaden Ivey, who have worked their way into the top picks conversation and two guys that I'm less familiar with. So we had a fun talk and explaining all that and got into some other stuff as Sam and I often do, including what's going on in Portland and various other components. Conversation runs a little bit under an hour, but a lot of good stuff in here. And we recorded this a couple days ago. So if there are any references that seem a teeny bit dated, it would be because of that, but it should be totally fine. The content is strong as it always is with Sam. Thanks so much for coming on. Danny, it's always a pleasure to be invited back to Real GM Radio. It is a uh, beautiful day here in Melbourne. I went for a run this morning uh, on January 2nd. We're recording in Melbourne. We're recording on your New Year's Day. So uh, I'm glad that we got a chance to do this. I am too. And you've written you've written a little bit on how things have moved in terms of the 22 draft over the last few months. And there are a couple different places that I want to I want to go on this. Some as you, you talked a little bit about the kind of the perceived depth of this class. Oh, that was an interesting piece that you wrote at The Athletic. I want to start a little bit, though, before that at the top. And um, yeah. Chet Holmgren, Paolo Boncaro, seems like they're still the top two, but I know our colleague John Hollinger has been talking about Jabari Smith's place, and he was somebody that, for what appear to be pretty logical reasons, I was very unfamiliar with before this. So I guess let's start with Smith and where he fits in all this. Yeah, so to generally paint the picture, right... I would say that all of Paulo Bancaro, Chet Holmgren, Jabari Smith, and to a lesser extent, Jaden Ivey, I would still throw him in that mix. Although I think that it would take a very specific team to take him at number one overall. Like, I don't know that anyone necessarily would take him over those guys, but uh, I think that those four are very clearly the top guys. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly, among the top four, I, I probably personally would take Jabari Smith at number one right now okay and, so well, what is the sales pitch yeah the sales pitch is pretty interesting so he is younger than both paulo and chet by a pretty substantial margin he's still 18 years old i think he doesn't turn 19 until somewhere between march and may off the top of my head uh he is six foot ten doesn't have like crazy length but good length like seven foot one wingspan seven foot one and a half wingspan i would venture uh plays for auburn and I think that the critical point here is that he has come in a little bit more ready for college basketball, both on the offensive and defensive end than what I think people anticipated. He's always been this guy that was considered a super high upside player, but a lot of these players in this mold end up being a a bit more raw by the time that they get to college. We've seen a lot of these tall shooters get to college and struggle early on in their collegiate career. But Jabari Smith, you you kind of have to go back and you look through the numbers. You look at his high school numbers. Now you look at the college numbers. You look at the shooting mechanics. You look at uh, his comfort level on the perimeter. I, I don't think it is an exaggeration to say that removing like the Kevin Durant level like freak shows from the world, uh, you, you know, including Jaron Jackson Jr., including Lowry Markinen, including all of these big six foot ten to seven foot tall shooters that have entered the NBA over the past, let's say, seven years, something like that. I think he's probably the best shooting prospect among these guys to enter the NBA, and. 
It has to do with the crispness of his mechanics. He can do it off of relocation pull-ups. Like he can take, uh, you know, one or two dribbles to the right, one or two dribbles to the left, stop, step back, pull up from three off the catch. He's not like a self-creator necessarily, unless he's out in transition where he is a very effective grab-and-go weapon right now. Uh, where he can go and just like get to the mid range and pull up or go and get to the three point line and pull up. Uh, defensively, he has great mobility. I think that he is going to profile really, really well on the defensive end as a switchable player in the NBA. Uh, he's a smart help side defender. He has good active hands. I look at Jabari Smith and I see him. If it all goes right for Jabari Smith, right? You, you try and figure out what the highest upside is. If it all goes right for Paulo Bancaro, if it all goes right for Chet Holmgren, right? I think that if it all goes right, for Jabari Smith in comparison to it all going right for those other guys. I think that Jabari Smith's ceiling is probably just a little bit higher than both of those two players. And that would take some real improvement in terms of his ball handling ability and his ability to uh, consistently create his own shot out of pick and rolls and out of different scenarios. But I think that if it gets there, his ceiling is just immensely, immensely high. That's fascinating. What I'm trying to piece together, so when you started that out, I was thinking offensively, I'm not talking about their physical profiles. We'll get to there in a second. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was thinking something, oh, like what Michael Porter Jr. has been so far for the Nuggets when he's been available. Yeah. Um, But what's interesting is Michael Porter Jr., I mean, you know this as well as anybody, he had that on-ball game before the back injuries. And whether it was because he didn't have that at at the like high-end NBA level, or it was just that was something that didn't really transfer after a couple of years out that the other guy that I thought of as you got later in it it's sort of in a way like what a taller version of what Bradley Beal became where it's like you're not the every down quarterback you're not that's not what you're going to be but you can be mm-hmm. an active piece in kind of two other facets that, that that's really interesting yeah the guy that that I, I would say that Jabari Smith should watch tape of. Not necessarily that he is this guy yet, because this guy is drastically better at snaking ball screens and creating his own shot that way. I think Jabari Smith needs to watch as much Paul George tape as possible. Okay. Uh, I see that as being more what the ceiling is if the ball handling like tightness and comfort figures itself out. And he's shown enough in transition and off of grab and goes to where I think that there's a world where it gets there. I I wouldn't project it getting there as a likely outcome, but I would say that there's a chance that it does get there after five years or so that he's in the NBA and he's 23 years old. And, you know, we we look up and it's like, oh, shit, Jabari Smith is like actually a top 15 player in the NBA now and can create his own shot and is good defensively. I will say I think he's a bit less... It's so hard because Paul George's developmental track record is so different compared to this, right? Right. Paul George went to Fresno State, was considered like a high upside swing that went late in the lottery because he was six foot nine and could really shoot. And it took him a couple years in the NBA even to figure out how to play at that level. Jabari Smith is going to play pretty much immediately in the NBA and it's going to be a different developmental track. But I think that their landing spots could end up the same if Jabari Smith ends up really improving uh and it would take some drastic improvement from him as a ball handler like it, it right now i think that the michael porter comparison is pretty apt 
in terms of off-ball scorer, great shooter, good cutter, can finish above the rim. Maybe not like as fluid through his hips and like dynamic as Michael Porter can be at times. Uh, whenever he's like trying to avoid contact at the basket, I think Jabari needs to improve just getting to the rim more often and consistently finishing at the basket. But I do look at, I look at it. I look at Jabari Smith's, you know, long-term ceiling is somewhere on the Michael Porter Jr. to, um, to Paul George continuum. And, you know, let's say that it ends up right where Michael Porter is now. That's an efficient 20 point per game scorer. Uh, let's say it ends up where Paul George is. That's, you know, a top 10 player in the NBA. So uh, I think that that's the continuum that he plays on. I looked it up. Jabari Smith, May of 20 of 2003. Also, that makes me feel super old. So that means if he yeah. goes pro next year will be his age 19 season. Well, it's his age 19 season either way, whether it's in college or the pro. So very yep. young, but having that, having that skill set to get there. And then defensively, it sounds like you are seeing him, you know, 610, 7-1 wingspan as more of a four than a five. Is that is yes. that maybe a little bit John Collinsy, where it's like he can do it in a pinch, but it's not his best position defensively? You know, I, I see him more as a four. I think he has better lateral quickness than John Collins had, especially entering the NBA. John has gotten a lot better in terms of his uh angles and positioning and his just like i think john collins is like a maniacal tape watcher from what i gather in terms of just like wanting to know exactly what he has to do at all times like the guy just loves basketball and has figured out a way to compensate for his lateral agility which is like okay it's not it's not terrible. It's not like some significant liability, but it's not great by NBA four level. Uh, but because he's so smart and has understood his angles so well and has gotten really uh, in tune with his footwork, uh, John Collins has become a good defender in a way that I think a lot of people uh, pre-draft did not necessarily project for him. Uh, in the case of Jabari, I think Jabari actually has the athletic tools to be a real switchable defender uh, at the four position. Again, I would not say that he's going to be like a Paul George level defender. I do think he's ahead of where Michael Porter is, though, if we're going to continue along that, like, you know, continuum, right? Mm-hmm. I think that he has really good instincts for going up and swatting weak side shots, contesting at the basket. I think that uh, in general, he tends to be pretty in tune in terms of uh, what Auburn is trying to do. It runs like a pretty aggressive, like scrambly system from time to time, especially when Walker, Walker Kessler is out of the game. They play a very helter skelter style of basketball that is very up and down and uh, can result in needing some pretty quick twitch uh, you know, decision making on defense. So I would not say that Jabari Smith is like one of the best defenders in this draft class. Uh, I, I would say that his upside defensively is pretty substantially lower than Chet Holmgren's. If everything goes right for Chet Holmgren long term in terms of his frame, I'd say it's lower than Jalen Duran and, um, you know, a few other like perimeter players. Right. But I do think that he can be a like above average NBA defender, uh, even while carrying a 20 point per game load in the NBA. That makes sense to me. And 
if he can shoot at that level and potentially even have some secondary or even primary creation responsibilities, yeah. there can be a very valuable player in there. Even if, even if it doesn't have, do, doesn't have that kind of defensive upside. There's actually a discussion yeah. Nate, and I, Nate and I got into in terms of top prospects. We got into that a little bit. And- yeah. Like the, 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 the thing that I would say about Jabari Smith, like when I'm like trying to project like what he can be long term, I would say right now, I feel most comfortable saying Jabari Smith at some point will probably be a top 25 to 30 player in the NBA, something like that. Right. Um, you know, a secondary ball handler who scores 20 points per game, very high level shooter, very scalable to a lot of different situations, which is really important, I think. And that's um, super valuable, as you know. Super, super valuable player. Um, I do worry a little bit about the upside if his handle does not get figured out, though. I, I think that that is like the real number one concern is him just getting more comfortable taking guys off the bounce. But um, I, I would think that the likely, if I'm projecting Jabari Smith, I I would say that like the likely good outcome for Jabari Smith is him being like a top 30 ish player in the NBA. Interesting. And then how have Holmgren and Boncaro changed their evaluations so far this year? You know, I I don't know that they have necessarily, Uh, you know, both of these guys have been so well scouted over the course of their high school careers. They're one of the few, they're two of the few people in this class that I think that statement is accurate about. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've just been seen in a lot of different levels and through a lot of different basketball. Uh, Boncaro looks every bit the dynamically offensive play, uh, creative playmaker on offense that we anticipated, right? Uh, he yeah, is Holl- six foot Hollinger 10. Hollinger brought up Mello as a possible comp. Yeah. Hmm. Do I think Mello? I, I would say not quite as fluid through his hips. That makes uh, sense. As I mean, Mello, Mello was Mello, when he was young. Mello's fluidity, like as a scorer, is such an underrated part of why he's why he was so great at those things. Yeah. To me, with Bancaro, it's more like if you combined like Mello with Julius Randle almost. Okay. Like not quite as much power as what Randall has, but uh, more, but has like some of the Carmelo like mid range stuff that Randall doesn't have in terms of like, you know, phone hand or uh, ball handling in a phone booth a little bit, right? To be able to create that shot and make contested mid range jumpers, but he's not quite as like fluid as Carmelo Anthony is as a scorer either. Um, you know, I, I do think Paulo Bancaro is going to be a 20 point per game scorer in the NBA. I think that um, he's going to be the kind of guy that you throw the ball to in the mid post is your secondary playmaker on offense and if you need a bailout shot he's going to get it for you like with ease i think that in terms of what his role is i think that these guys are different like lamarcus aldridge was much more of a post up like back to the basket big man whereas paulo is a bit more of a uh perimeter based guy that can you know face up in the mid-range and score could could you make the argument that that boncaro is like what lamarcus would be if he was raised as a player now as opposed to when he did it I think that it's kind of that. Yeah. Uh, like it's what LaMarcus would be developed as now. LaMarcus is bigger than what Bancaro is. Like LaMarcus okay. is longer. He's, I think he's 6'11 with like a 7'4 wingspan. Bancaro is like 6'10 with a like 7 foot, 7 foot 1 wingspan. So again, you're, you're looking at a size difference there, but I do think that there are some similarities in terms of high usage offensive creator in the mid range who gets a lot of his shots that way, who can step out and occasionally knock down threes. 
uh, who can be a part of a good defense because he's really smart and really good with his angles and really good with his uh, ability to uh, just know how to use his body on the interior and know how to use like a very strong frame on the interior uh, to contest inside. And he's not terrible away from the basket, but he's not you know necessarily a guy that you're going to trust away from the basket. Um so I think that you're looking at a guy that can be like a really good high level secondary scorer, maybe could make an all NBA team, like plausibly could make an all NBA team at some point, but more in the vein of like all-star scorer who treads enough water on defense and, you know, plays smart and can be a part of a good defense, but not necessarily like the difference maker on defense that, um, you know, someone like Chet Holmgren, for instance, could be if it works out. Sure. Okay. That that makes sense to me. And that also makes Boncaro, in some ways it's an easy player to fit, but in some ways it's a hard one because you have to kind of fit him in the pecking order in a certain way. Does that make sense? A little bit. Yeah. Like I, I would really like to see him end up in like Oklahoma City or in Detroit because I think he's going to be able to score from the jump in the NBA. Like, I think there are going to be very few worries about him. Like, I think he averages 15 points a game in the NBA his first year because his level of polish as a ball handler at six foot 10 is ridiculous. Like he is able, he can throw like a face up jab step, uh, you know, takes the ball out real quick, left to right crossover, right to left crossover, step back, pull up mid range, like 19 footer and make it. And just totally get the defender off balance, totally throw him off and create that, you know, 40 to 45% look in his case, whenever he wants to create that look. Um, I think that on a good team that has like a preordained hierarchy of players, that might be a little bit harder to fit in. Whereas I think Jabari Smith would be much easier to fit in because he can just step in and be an elite three point shooter from the jump. Um, but if it's like, like Houston to me would be really interesting with Paulo Bancaro because like they already have Alperin Shangun, they already have, um, Christian Wood on this roster still. Paulo is like, I, I don't know where he fits within that realm. Like if I was Houston, I would just move Christian Wood, right? Like, yeah. but at the end of the which day, they, which they that. might have done by that point anyway. It, yeah. Like it, it's just hard to project that right now because I, if I'm an opposing team, I don't know that I value Christian Wood, right? And then, you know, just, I mean, the funny thing is we're, we're looking at a situation where if you look at the standings right now, like Portland and Oklahoma City are tied for the yeah. fourth pick. And what Portland does here at the deadline is going to be fascinating because if I'm Portland, like I, I've said this in a number of places, but like I'm I'm getting rid of all this. Like I'm I'm ending this one. It's it's time. It feels like it's time. I don't want to go fully down the Portland rabbit hole, but the yeah. other kind of component that has to be weighing in this process for them is the financial part of it, that Paul Allen, unfortunately, is no longer there. And this is a very expensive team yeah. that doesn't have a clear path to being very good. They have a path to being pretty good. I mean, they've been there in, yeah. the, in the recent past. And I, I talk a lot about how willingness to pay is not universal. And it's not, you know, I mean, there are certain owners, incidentally, Paul Allen was one of them, who are more willing than others in similar situations to pony up and i think that's a great thing for the league i wish there were more owners like that i lament for many reasons his passing but i also understand it from a practical perspective that if your team is not at that level paying 
two players, especially like in some ways, CJ is more egregious than Dame because Lillard, other than this season, has been so phenomenal. And it's not like Norm Powell's making a ton of money or something like that, but it just, it gets complicated and they have two high profile players that are pending free agents and everything else. So yeah, they're in a complicated situation. Maybe they end up, you know, circumstances dictated by either Lillard realizing, realizing what I think he should have realized a couple of years ago, which is that this team isn't at that level. If that's what he cares about, more power to him if it's not, but it's, well, a, it's at really this point with Dame, it just feels like a game of chicken, right? Like he doesn't want to opt out or he doesn't want to like ask out because he wants to be the guy that stayed right and i totally get that like i think there's something noble about that in the case of Damian well it, it's interesting right? like i the the analogy and this is going to be a weird cross sport one that i've wondered about with him is kind of like ray bork where yeah, a little bit yeah where it's like i did everything i could and we didn't get there and that sucks and there's a part of that in some ways and I can't remember exactly what the terms were. I, I, I remember what happened with Bray, but I don't remember where where everything went. Is that like there could be a mutually beneficial thing here where Lillard says, okay, I can move and then gets to a circumstance where his team is more immediately competitive, which that seems totally plausible. And where those additional pieces are significant factors in the next great Blazers team. And so yeah. in that circle, like, and that in a lot of ways, like it's the part of this that is actually actually sort of beautiful about the NBA system is that you end up because of the double coincidence of wants you end up with teams that are valuing different things and so you can end up with mutually beneficial transactions and that's part of why when i've written you know trade analysis pieces for the athletic i've always tried to not do it in the phrase of who won and who lost because the answer can be both it can be neither and i could see a lillard trade depending on how it happens doing that well, and it's funny, like the thing I've been thinking about is like the Kevin Garnett situation in Minnesota. Yeah. And it's it's a little bit different because Minnesota had missed the playoffs for three straight years, despite having Kevin Garnett before this. And up until now, the Blazers have been pretty competitive. Like they made a Western Conference Finals, I believe that. Well, they've won, uh, the they've won Minnesota in the mid to high 40s more than those Wolves teams did, if memory serves. Yeah, like it was pretty consistent. Um, whereas like with the Minnesota team, what that was. What year did they make the conference finals? Was it 2003 or 2004? It was one of those years, right? But it was just kind of a slow and steady three-year. I think it was 2004, and then it was a three-year drop-off until the point where they went like 33 and 49 or something. And it was like, okay, like it might be time, right? And if I remember correctly, like I don't think that like he really truly asked out, did he? I I think it was more like I'm not going to stop it anymore. Yeah, like that. That's like what that. it felt like to me. Like there's, or at least that's how it was to, reported. Yeah, yeah. Like there's a way to do this. Like I think that if you're Damian Lillard, like you don't have to. Like it, it doesn't have to be like what Ben Simmons is doing. It doesn't have to be what you know X, Y, and Z player is doing. Like it can be a circumstance where it's just like, look, it's probably best for everyone involved at this point for us to move on. Like I I understand that I don't have like a crazy amount of value, and I love the city of Portland, but this team is bad and we're going to get worse because we have no flexibility going forward and Covington and Yusuf Nurkic are free agents this year and we have to make some sort of change, right? Like we can't just bring them back. Like it, it probably makes sense at this point just to move forward and move on. I don't, I don't know if he'll do that. We'll, we'll find out, but like and, and, and the other it, it doesn't have to this, be this. I, I just say that like, it doesn't have to be this like wholly negative experience when a superstar no. asks out after a decade. It, it really. doesn't. 
And it will be painful if that's what ends up happening for the fan base. But that pain is coming either way, as long as our analysis of where the Blazers are is correct. You know, like, is it more painful to let your star go and have them succeed or fail in a different place? Or is it more painful to see them kind of toil in obscurity and be be a, you know, an all a, an all NBA player or even when the, he falls to below that level and never have really had a, a chance to fight like they're each one of them is hard. One of them is kind of more satisfying, you could argue for the fan base, but it's it's complicated. And, and the more the more complicated part within it is like, look. I, I don't know about you, but like, I don't think Damian Lillard's the kind of guy it's going to go for. Hey, Dame, you know, we're 13 and 22 right now, or in then in a month and a half, we're 15 games under 500. You know, we're, we're going to shut you down, right? Oh, I, that, that I, I don't think, that think would he's going for insane. that. Yeah. Um, so, I like, mean, even though it probably would be a good thing for his body after it seems like he either was hurt or played hurt during the Olympics, like to have that time totally. off. But yeah, I, I, and especially were it to be that that was kind of how his tenure in Portland ended. I I can imagine that falling on some really, really deaf ears. And the other, you got into the other part of it, which is it benefits the Blazers to know sooner rather than later because oh like you can you can let those dominoes fall you know let let Nurkic let Covington walk theoretically as free agents and do everything else but being proactive I I I harp on this all the time you know it's like when you know it's so much better to move early than to move late there are exceptions like I mean I think Orlando benefited in the Vooch situation they held a little longer they got a stronger offer but generally speaking it helps to move earlier and then the other part for Lillard and this could help I think this could help in a lot of different ways is that even with their tumultuous front office you know with Olshay's firing and everything else I'm sure there is a rough understanding within that front office of what offers are on the table this is not a circumstance where everybody Olshay on down has just put earmuffs on and just gone la 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 anytime any team expressed like hey if Lillard's ever out there this is what we're thinking I hope not, at least. Yeah, I mean, that would be malpractice. And so hopefully there is an idea of who's interested, what would be viable. And and I am not firmly in the camp. Like I'm to me there. You want to do right by Lillard, but you don't want to do so in a way that materially weakens the team circumstance, because the thing is, both sides agreed to this. You know, like Lillard agreed to this contract with the idea that that ceded a lot of control to the team. He could have signed a shorter deal. He could have done any number of other things and he didn't but i also think that being pure machiavellian zero sum for a player who has given you so much that would be a little bit ridiculous but the good news is that generally speaking you don't have to make that kind of decision because the sacramento kings aren't making you the strongest offer for damian lillard in most circumstances no the the team that will the situation that will be the strongest offer in terms of value is philadelphia i would think so if they throw everything on the table which frankly they should i think and then you decide whatever you want to do with ben simmons right like maybe it's you keep him and you play with him maybe it's um you move him somewhere else i've thrown out like the boston landing spot previously right like i think that ben simmons solves a lot of problems for boston or, to or be for, honest. Me, for me that's the scenario that I'll, I'll i'll only lay the basics of this but i think simmons makes a lot of sense in indiana yeah so i agree with that too simmons yeah. so the way you solve this is simmons goes to indiana sabonis goes to portland 
and other resources go to Philly, including Lillard. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Like I, I you know, without you know, like, diving I, I, deep into what that is. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's great. Yeah. So that's, I think that's a one way to, one way to make it work. Um, so uh, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. Um, let's get back to the, let's get back to some of the 22 guys and yeah, another, and, and another name we haven't, only, go ahead. Well, let's, let's do this. Like the only reason we went into that rabbit hole is because like, you know, I mentioned that Paulo Bancaro, I think fits in some places better than others uh pre-draft right like portland is one of those teams that i think is gonna have to make a decision new orleans i think is one of those teams that's gonna have to make a decision but like realistically right now i feel confident like in terms of like who are gonna be the top three teams like i I think that detroit orlando and houston are probably gonna end up in some order being the bottom three teams or at least three of the bottom five teams let's say sure uh we'll see with oklahoma city like i I would imagine that shea is not going to want to like totally get shut down again so maybe they could be a fourth maybe they end up more in like the six seven range but the the rest of these teams like portland new orleans at some point is probably going to get zion back indiana up until these last like three games has been a little bit better right uh sacramento you know has not been great but i think they still have a desire to make a push for the play-in game and they're only i believe like two games out of a play-in game as of the time that we talk uh i really like minnesota minnesota's in the play-in game san San antonio's in the play-in game both of those teams though could easily decide to move more toward you know the tanking avenue of things so i I just say all this to say like this draft is going to be a real eye of the beholder draft at the top i don't think we're gonna know who is gonna go number one at the very least until the lottery because there are just going to be there's going to be enough closeness among this top three and potentially the top four to where there isn't going to be like any semblance of okay this guy makes more sense here this guy makes more sense there and then on top of that we have a season where realistically we only know who like three of the bottom five teams are going to be so i think that this is the draft where i have the least certainty about number one overall and who it's going to be and where he's going to end up and everything then i can remember you know what like i think that this is just a wide open scenario right yeah and that totally changes the way teams think about positioning and a lot of other things but the lot flat and lottery odds com- complement it and so the player i wanted to get to after that and i think that's a really kind of good way of setting this table is jay nivey because he's another player who i was largely unfamiliar with having a huge year at purdue what do you see like it's i mean what do you see his role not right now but let's say two three years from now on a decent team yeah, so it's interesting. Jaden Ivey plays more of the two guard now at Purdue, much in the same way. Do you remember like how Eric Bledsoe played the two next to John Wall in yes. Kentucky, right? Like it's it's kind of like one of those, except you know, Jaden Ivey is more the John Wall in terms of usage. But I just mean in terms of like positionally, he's playing a little bit more off the ball than on the ball. But when he's on the ball, you see these crazy flashes of vision and of like ball control, live dribble passing, especially out when he has a little bit of space out in transition. It's very impressive. Uh, the, the thing that I think 
you know, we should mention the shooting. There are evaluators around the league that certainly still have some concerns in terms of his shooting. Mm-hmm. I'm look like I have some concerns. Like I, I won't deny that. But if you go back through his high school track record, he knocked down 40% from three over the course of his final three seasons in high school. Last year at Purdue, he shot 25% from three. Then this year, right now on five attempts per game, he's at 45% from three and he's made some pull-ups. Like he's made some interesting, you know, impressive attempts, right? So that's four or five years now where he's been above 40% from three. I'm not saying he's like an elite shooter, but I think he can shoot on some level. Like, I think he has some real touch and he just needs to work through some mechanical deficiencies at this point that hinder his consistency. Okay. Now the big thing that I think he needs to work on is something that we've seen early on with Jalen Suggs at, uh, in Orlando because Jalen often played off the ball at Gonzaga and because AAU basketball is what it is. I think that Jalen early in his Orlando career is struggling with the, and look, we saw 20 games up until he broke his wrist. If I remember correctly, um, hand wrist, whatever it was. Uh, I think he was struggling to work through his pick and roll reads early on and keep control of the ball and do all of that simultaneously. Right. Uh, I think it's more of an experience thing with Jalen Suggs that is just going to continue to grow and mature and keep getting better over the course of his career. I think I see some of that with Jaden Ivey, where he's such a reactive player that he just kind of makes things happen right now. He's such a freak athlete in terms of quickness and athleticism that like nobody can stay in front of him when he's out like in the semi break and catches like a double dragon transition and has a roller and has like a corner pocket three point shooter that you can throw across corner kick out to Sasha Stefanovic or whatever right like i think he's just so reactive right now that he doesn't really need the like tried and true oh my god i need to get through all of these reads right now i need to like you know work my way through my first progression to my second progression to you know cross corner kick out to okay i need to escape dribble and then we need to reset the offense real quick right Mm -hmm. um much in the same way that Jalen Suggs is struggling with that with Orlando early on. I think we might see some of that with Jaden Ivey, but I don't think that diminishes his long-term upside, which I think is that of a top 10 starting point guard in the NBA eventually, if it goes right. Um, and then defensively, because I mean, I know he's around 6'4". Is he, is he agile enough to defend them or is he more of a guy who runs the show but defends too? Um, You know, he doesn't defend at the point of attack all that often right now. Because they're not, they're not asking him to. They don't ask him to. He has all of the tools to be able to do it. There's no reason to think that he can't do it. It's just we we don't have the experience of him doing it at this point. And we will have to see how that plays out. Some guys are really good with it. I think he generally does an okay job of like navigating screens when he's asked to inside ball screen scenarios and things of that nature. But, you know, I, I think that it's... I can't sit here and tell you, like, I know for a fact that he can be a plus defender, but he has yeah. all the tools. He's six foot four. He has like a six foot seven wingspan. He's very like his twitch is off the charts. Like he is such uh, a twitchy athlete that there's no reason to think that he can't do it. It's just going to take, look, it just might take some time, right? His upside is very, very high though, as a lead ball handler, I think. The reason why that matters to me in Ivy's case is because I see one position, two defenders, and maybe he can switch a little bit, but I see one position, two defend, like shooting guard defenders as so much less valuable than guys who can like do two and anything yeah. else. 
And um, that's it, it. Like, so it's it's an interesting question to kind of see where where that can go for him. And, that, you know, it's not going to be why Ivy gets drafted high or low. Like, I think offense is such a dictator of that. But it will be important in terms of his eventual success. Yeah, like I, I, I w- I'm going to be going into this draft assuming he can defend ones and twos because there's no again, like I, I've seen nothing in his tape that makes me think he can't defend twos or can't defend once. You know what I mean? It's just that he's not asked to do it. Like all of the Twitch, all of the athleticism, like that stuff's there. Like there's no just because, you know, Anthony Edwards wasn't asked to defend ones at Georgia doesn't mean that I think he can't be switchable onto ones. He's been okay. Like his problems are more off the ball, right? Like Anthony falls asleep sometimes, but when he's on the ball, like he's really engaged and can handle one through three and he's stronger than Ivy. And I think that Ivy's more of a one, two, as opposed to a one through three guy like Edwards is, but yeah, like all of the Twitch, all the athleticism, like he works hard. I I see no reason to think that he can't be a, um, maybe not necessarily like an elite defender, but a positive, you know, helpful defender on some level. Yeah, makes sense to me. I mentioned this in the open, but something I found really fascinating, I think it was mid-December, you wrote a piece for The Athletic talking about how, while there are other players that some have with first round grades, one of the less common elements of the 22 draft as of then, and you can correct me if it has changed since, Mm -hmm. is that there aren't as many consensus first round quality players. And that is... First of all, it's obviously bad news for teams in the late first round. But I mean, some of those players will establish themselves and differences of opinion are not the same as those players are not good enough. But we're for do you think that's just like, you know, we talk about stars, starters and rotation players is kind of like that. Those are my differentiators when somebody says, is it a good draft class? And is it does it feel to you like maybe that starter group is a little weaker this year? I would say that this draft particularly has fewer sure things. This draft is going to be a lot of upside swings in some level. Isn't Jaden Hardy another example of that? Like he's potentially like a decent high lottery pick who doesn't seem like a sure thing. Yeah. Like I'll be honest, like I have Jaden Hardy, like in the twenties right now for me personally. Um, I I understand having him like in the top 15, but he's just like not my kind of player type. Like it was the same with Cam Thomas last year. Like I had Cam Thomas at like 23 or 24 I'll be honest, I think Jaden Hardy is a worse prospect than Cam Thomas. So, like, what are we... It's trying to navigate that, right? Um, you know, there are guys... Well, it's also like, guys like um, uh, per, like Peyton Watson not having great... not At least not having the the opportunities yet so far, but not, not, not really... I don't think there have been many of those guys that have really established themselves other than you wrote about um, Agbaji at Kansas, who is really doing that. Yeah, no, I think Oshai has been phenomenal this year. Like he's taken all of the feedback that he needed to and turned it into uh, a real player. When do you think turned himself into a real player? When do you think the last time that Peyton Watson made a field goal in an, in a college game was? I would guess like a month and a half ago. Yeah, it was November 22nd against Bellarmine. 
Incredible. Uh, so before Thanksgiving, he made it or like right around Thanksgiving was the last time he made a field goal. Uh, and look like UCLA has been hit by COVID. They've, um, you know, missed some games here and there. Maybe he'll come back from this little break that they're on. And, um, you know, he's figured some things out that McCronin wants him to figure out. Right. But I, I don't think there's any circumstance where we can project him entering the 2022 NBA draft right now. Just because, I mean, like, when, when was the last time a guy went a month and a half without making a field goal? And who, who is playing. Like this isn't a James Wiseman situation. Yeah, like, like he's just not playing. And it's not necessarily his fault that he's not playing. He's just behind Jaime Hawkes and um, Johnny Juzang and Jules Bernard and David Singleton, all of whom are juniors and seniors and, uh, you know, guys that Mick Cronin knows and can trust. And that's not to say that Peyton Watson's upside is any less than what we thought it was four months ago. I was always a little bit lower on Peyton Watson personally than what I think the consensus was. Like I never had him at, you know, I think there are other people who had him like at four or five at one point. Like I always thought of him as a, you know, if things go right, he'll be a lottery pick for UCLA this year. Sure, But you know, like it's, the guy's gone a month and a half without making a field goal. Like we can't, it's hard to project that guy, you know, entering the NBA draft right now. Uh, Max Christie was a guy that I loved coming into the year at Michigan State. Uh, he was phenomenal in the preseason for them. All of the reports out of East Lansing were great and he looked, um, by all accounts, like a real player. Uh, you know, he had 17 points against Oakland on December 21st and he had a good game against Louisville. He had a good game against Toledo. He had a good game against Butler. Like he's had some pretty nice outings, but then you look overall at the numbers and he has a 48 true shooting percentage right now. Nice. <laughs> I mean, like it's, it's tough to project that as a first round pick. Um, you know, JD Davison statistically at Alabama is someone that's having a pretty solid year. Like you look across the board and you know, his numbers are, are pretty good. Like he has a 62 shooting percentage. He has a 29 assist rate right now, but you look at his games since December 11th, eight points, four points, four points, five points, uh, had eight turnovers in their last game against Tennessee has a 31.7% turnover rate. He plays off the ball essentially is like a, like, like passing two guard almost uh he rebounds well as a six foot three guard but how much of that is actually going to be his role at the nba level i I mean the numbers look fine but you actually watch the tape and it's like this guy has shown nothing that makes you believe he can be an nba starting point guard beyond just being like a freak show athlete like he has Mm -hmm. doesn't really make pull-up jumpers makes passing reads more like off the ball like and in transition than he does like make high level pick and roll like decisions right so you know are you going to take that guy at 12 like uh, i I wouldn't personally i i would consider him like as a late first round pick but you know that's a guy in, in the freshman class that's succeeding right now in many ways so and by the way like that's a guy where his athleticism is so drastic and twitchy and like he is an elite athlete by like NBA point guard standards. So if he develops all of the tools that he needs in terms of ball handling, pull up shooting, everything, it's a long road and it's going to take multiple years of development, but there's real like, okay, he could be a top half of the league starting point guard if he gets all of those tools. But like the hit rate on that is low, right? Like it's just not going to be someone like that's not, it's not a likely outcome, but it is a potential outcome. So there are a lot of guys like that. I think in this class where the potential outcomes 
are high, but the potential bust factor is also pretty high. If we're being real with it, like I, I think the bust factor in this draft for a lot of players is very high. And I think that there is a lot of, there are a lot of like landmines or there are a lot of, uh, like just absolute fundamental enormous hits that teams could get like all the way down at like 25. Like you could find a starter at 25 in this class just as easily as you could find a starter probably at 15 right now in this class. That's wild. And I mean, we're deep like that, that middle ground, like the difference this year is like that middle ground. I think that there's a much lower bus factor in that middle ground for someone like Oshai Agbaji, like worst case scenario, 40% three point shooter, good defender. Worst case scenario, Oshai Agbaji is probably an eighth man. Whereas with someone like JD Davison, like worst case scenario is this guy like might be out of the NBA at some Mm -hmm. point within the first like four years of his career. But in terms of that, like starter factor, yeah, I think that like you're just as likely to find one at 15 as you are at 25 right now. Incredible. One other guy I wanted to ask you about just because I was going through one of your pieces and I was stunned that he exists. There's another Nance. Yeah, this is the this is the good Nance, actually, the one that was like expected to be a very good prospect, whereas like Larry ended up at Wyoming and um, had Crohn's disease. Uh, I think he still has. I don't know if you'd lose Crohn's disease. I believe he Um, still has it. Yeah, I was going to say, like, apologies. I'm not like super familiar with the disease, but. Um, you know, someone who had real questions and just worked his ass off and worked his way into being a first round pick. Pete Nance was always like a top, you know, 75 to 100 recruit in his recruiting class. And, you know, someone that evaluators really liked coming in and thought he was a potential NBA player. And he's finally kind of, um, emerged as a potential, you know, real option for a team in the second round. The, the difference between Pete and Larry is that Larry is a bit more Larry pushy. Jr., right? Yeah, Larry Jr., the, the the Larry Nance that plays for the Portland Trailblazers, right? Um, Larry Jr. is just a bit more twitchy than Pete is. Uh, you know, Pete is athletic and can be a rim runner and can be um, actually a pick and pop guy. Like he's shooting 42% from three so far this year on like three attempts per game. And uh, he's been a great free throw shooter for the last couple of years. So there's some real like touch there. Similar level passing ability, similar level dexterity, like in dribble handoffs and all of that stuff, but just not, not quite as twitchy. Like with Larry, his whole value proposition is he can be an elite level defender three through five, uh, and switch out onto ones and twos and, you know, be able to slide. And then he's an elite help defender because of that twitchiness. Pete isn't a bad athlete by any stretch of the imagination, but he's more like, like it's almost like better version of like Dean Wade for me okay. right now. And like Dean Wade has turned himself into like a real NBA player. So, you know, I, I don't mean that as a like wildly negative statement either. It's just that um, I think that it, it's, it's a little bit of a different player in the case of Pete versus Larry. That all makes sense. I, I think the way that I want to end this is not teams to watch you. And I've done that a lot. If you have one that you think of, but it's what players in this class have you enjoyed watching the most? Who is this year's bones? Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Because now oh, people man. have a chance to watch these guys. So if you say, you know, I don't know, I don't know who it is, but who, you, they'll have a chance. Yeah. To, even before the tournament. So I love watching Baylor. Baylor is probably my favorite team in the country to watch. Uh, I think that they just like play such a fun brand of basketball. They're the number one team in the country. They have a top five offense and a top five defense. Like none of this is breaking news necessarily. Right. 
Um, but I, I really enjoy watching Baylor. I, I really particularly enjoy watching Kendall Brown out of Baylor. Uh, another guy that's 18 doesn't turn 19 until May. Uh, he only had four points in a game against Iowa State uh, earlier today and was okay. But uh, a guy that I have as a potential top 10 pick in this class, and, and that kind of says a lot about this class, by the way, that um, Kendall Brown, who I think I would project as like, Aaron Gordon-ish level player, right? Um, I, I have him at five right now in this class. Mm. Uh, you know, 72 true shooting percentage, elite level athlete, elite level cutter, great player off the ball. 45% from three, making half of a three a game. Um, you know, can make some free throws, has good touch, but it's still going to take some time for him to work through his shooting mechanics to make him a comfortable shooter. Uh, has been much more consistent though, in terms of production, just due to his understanding of how to play off the ball. So, uh, his aggressiveness defensively, he's already a very high level defender on, I would even say like two through four pretty comfortably. He's six foot eight, uh, maybe six eleven, seven foot wingspan something like that um really really effective off-ball player and is someone who really enjoys kind of watching uh for that stuff it's been really fun for me to watch uh kendall brown and just watch baylor in general i I really love watching that baylor team uh what i'm trying to think other prospects tari eason kind of fits that mold at lsu i just highlighted him on my podcast as a prospect of the week for me um you know, averaging, I think, like 15 points and eight rebounds, but another super high-level defender, great rebounder, great weak-side rim protector, uh, can really slide and defend, and then also has great recovery speed defensively. I have no idea if he can shoot. He shoots this, like, weird catapulty looking shot. He made, He's made 80% of his free throws this year, but only 27% from three. His mechanics are messy but not broken is how I would describe them. Um, it, it's going to take some time for him, I, I think, to really kind of figure it out. But I do like him a bit. I'm, I'm trying to think of other other players that have really stood out to me. Blake Wesley at Notre Dame is another guy. Um, I was not super familiar with him coming into his freshman season at Notre Dame, but he has been absolutely outstanding. Uh, he is one of the few freshmen in this class that has just consistently been a double digit scorer per game. Uh, he has some shooting things to work through. It's kind of a funky looking shot that ends up on a straight line, but he's, I don't think he's the best half court creator uh, in this class as a lead guard, but he is a case as one of the best half court lead guard creators at six foot five, very skinny, but uh, I've enjoyed watching him uh, as someone that I was not familiar with out of this freshman class. Uh, he came right from South Bend, Indiana and stayed home, went to Notre Dame and um, basically, you know, entered their starting lineup in December and hasn't looked back. Like he's essentially running their offense right now. He made the game winner for them against Kentucky. I, I look at him as a real potential first round pick that uh, if we look up and he goes 20th on draft night, I would not be surprised by that by any stretch. Awesome. I love having a couple of guys to watch. I'll probably, I, I, my hope is to watch some of the, the G League Unite as well between now and the next time we talk. Cause there, there are a couple of guys there that are, are worth, and I've, I've, um, I think it's Schmitz has been talking up Beauchamp as well, who I saw yeah. in person. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Like I, I like Marjan. 
Uh, I think that there is some real potential there as a wing stopper. I don't quite know what you do with him on offensively at the moment. Uh, not really a shooter, really just like a high level cutter at the moment. And I, I think that that's kind of hard to project to the next level. So yeah, really, really great defender, great energy, great effort, uh, has a great attitude. It seems like, uh, he's really like taken the, you know, junkyard dog idea of what that team needs and run with it. So I, I really like him. The guy that I like on the ignite is Dyson Daniels. I think Dyson Daniels is really high level. Um, great defender, great passer for a six foot six player, uh, rebounds the ball, just really needs to shoot it to be like a secondary, you know, playmaker, but. I'll be honest, like, I don't see this year's Ignite team as having, you know, a guy, right? Like last year they had Jalen Green and Jonathan Kaminga, both of whom went in the top seven. Next year, they will obviously have Scoot Henderson, who's on this year's team, but he'll go somewhere in the top three, in my opinion. This year's crop, it just doesn't really have that guy. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah, I, th- I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, thank you so much for taking time. Always a pleasure, my friend. Yeah, of course, Danny, anytime. Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. Always love discussing anything and everything with him. You can, of course, check out his great work at The Athletic. You can and should listen to the Game Theory podcast that he does, which is absolutely excellent. And can follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini. Also, Sam has a YouTube page now, which you should definitely check out. And I absolutely, of course, as people probably know, love talking with him and piecing this all together. And I, I'll, I'd like to start watching some draft film a little bit sooner, but it's really going to depend on the ebb and flow of the NBA season and everything else. So I, it's a constant refrain from me that I wish I had more time in season to look at the college guys, but I, I generally don't. As usual, if you want to support the show, there are a lot of ways that you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode that is particularly useful for Real GM Radio, because it will never come out on a specific day or week. It's my availability, guest availability, all that fun stuff. You can also leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player for choosing. Helps other people find the show. Word of mouth does too. And there's a little bit of, I guess you call it inside baseball, but... Part of the reason there was a little bit of a delay in this episode is that Real GM Radio has changed homes. Um, while our relationship with Podcast One was was wonderful, and I really am appreciative of their staff and everything that happened there, and you'll actually continue to hear my voice on their airwaves um, just in a, in a different capacity— Real GM Radio is now back with one of our previous homes, uh, CLNS Radio, and I've I've loved working with them for years. And so when the opportunity came up to figure out what I wanted to do with this, I had a conversation with them and it went very well. And so for you, the podcast listener, my expectation and hope is that it will not be dramatically different, that you still have it pop into your podcast player and everything else. But I'm thrilled to be back with CLNS to revitalize that relationship. And they were always so good to Real Jam Radio. So I'm thrilled about that on a personal level. You can also check out my other work. Nate and I are still going strong with Dunked On, public episodes, technically twice a week, but the 15 and 60s typically are the, are the big one there. And then Dunked On Prime covers all of our, the rest of our week, which is a whole lot of content. We've done some really fun stuff recently, including our biggest storylines of 2021 and then what we think they're going to be in 2022, gamers and, and all that. And you can also check out my written work at The Athletic. I actually just submitted a piece. I do not know when it's going to publish on Gary Payton II. And we do 
Twitter spaces. Um, I'm doing two a week in different capacities. So one will be, I, we call it Dunked on Live, which is Nate and I taking your questions. And then the other one is shifted around. I actually did a really fun Twitter spaces with the NBA last week where I talked with Anyeka Kongwu originally and then and then did a conversation on kind of the rookie class and history of rookies and everything else, which was really fun. And then this week, it'll be more of a me answering your questions. It looks like that's going to be Friday. I'm feeling a little under the weather, so I'm kind of pushing it back as I can, but I'm going to do it when I need to, of course. And if you have any feedback on the show, good, bad, or indifferent, NBA at gmail.com is the way to get to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. That is an absolute promise. I'll respond if I can, but reading it is, is really what this is about. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thank you.